Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, December 13th, 2020, and this is show number 814. Well, I had a complete blast on Chit Chat Across the Pond late this week. Tom Merritt is the host, co-host, or guest on 13 currently running podcasts. He's a science fiction author, and he makes time to exercise himself and his dogs, and he even spends time with his wife. I wanted to know how he accomplishes all of this, you know, without going crazy, so I asked him to come on the show and explain it to us. My suspicion was that he had one or maybe two clones, or possibly that he only sleeps three hours per night. I was wrong. I don't want to spoil the story, but Tom has a lot of strategies that are, are just common sense, but I never thought of applying them the way he does. I'm not saying that this is going to be, you know, a self-help episode from which you can learn, but, you know, it was really fun to see how he gets so darn much done. You can listen to this episode over at podfeet.com, or better yet, subscribe in your podcatcher to Chit Chat Across the Pond Light and get all of the episodes. Well, you know, that music means it's time for a tiny tip. Recently, Bart and I were chatting about the aspect ratio options on the iPhone's camera. I hadn't actually noticed that you could change the aspect ratio until he mentioned it. I'm talking about as you take the picture, not afterwards in cropping. Starting with the iPhone XS, at the top of the camera screen, there's now a little downward-facing chevron. Tapping it reveals a whole host of options, some of which are duplicating functions you can already see on screen without the chevron. You'll get an option to change the flash, enable night mode, enable live photos, set a timer, and even change the exposure with a slider all before you take the photo. But the control I wanted to talk about today is the aspect ratio because I discovered something very curious about it. The button that uh, changes the aspect ratio will be the current aspect ratio. It's, it's kind of strange. It's a menu button, but it says the current aspect ratio. So if you've never fiddled with it before, it's probably showing as 4 colon 3, 4 by 3. Tapping the aspect ratio will allow you to change it to square or 16 by 9. Bart takes a lot of landscape photos, so he keeps his in 16 by 9. And, you know, I'm always trying to be as cool as Bart, so I set mine at 16 by 9 as well. I'm really enjoying shooting in this aspect ratio because I feel like I'm getting so much more on screen, sort of like having a wide-angle view but without distortion at the edges. But one day I was messing with the photo, trying to get the white balance and exposure the way I wanted it, and I managed to get it all borked up and I just wanted to start over. So I hit the revert or original button, depending on the OS you're using, expecting to just see the exposure go back to the way it was. But that's not all that went back. That's not all that happened. This photo I'd taken in 16 by 9 in landscape was suddenly 4 by 3. Not only that, there was a ton more information in the photo. Everything that was there before in the width was still there, but there was way more photo available to me in height. That's when I realized that shooting in 16 by 9 on an iPhone is simply cropping your photos in advance for you. It's not widening them, it's actually cropping them. Understanding this is important. Once you realize how this works, you can make an informed decision on how you want to shoot. Bart really likes to have his images in 16 by 9, so it's better for him to start in that aspect ratio. He likes to see in the camera how he's framing the image. When he gets home and he starts to edit, he can still keep the photo at 16 by 9 in photos, but he has the option to slide the crop up and down to show more sky or more ground. 
But if you mostly like 4x3 images, then shoot in 4x3 from the beginning. And if once in a while you like to do, you want to do a landscape shot or some other capture that would look better in a wider format, just use photos after the fact to crop to 16x9. Maybe you knew all this, but it sure was a surprise to me, so I figured it was worthy of a tiny tip. Our phones are now our cameras, and their ability to capture photos and videos is only getting better and better. But you may miss one ergonomic feature of your now dusty big girl camera, and that's the hand grip. Holding onto a rectangular slab of glass to take photos can get tiring after a while, especially if you're shooting a lot of video. It takes more effort to balance it, making it more tiring and increasing the likelihood that you could drop your phone. It's also a bit tricky sometimes to hold a balance of phone and then get one finger to the screen to tap the shutter icon. At the same time, I don't personally miss having to lug around a giant DSLR camera or even a diminutive micro four-thirds camera just to get that more stable grip. What if you could have the best of both worlds, a removable hand grip for your cell phone? Turns out this is a crowded category, and my friend Pat Dangler bought the Ulanzi Select Cap Grip from B&H Photo for the grand sum of $12.95. She let me play or she lets me play with her toys, sometimes even before she has a chance to play with them. The cap grip connects to your phone by the same kind of spring mechanism you're used to, seeing on like a phone mount for your car, you know, the, the two sides that squeeze together. The grip holds phones from 2.44 inches to 3.27 inches wide. The iPhone 12 Pro in a very thin case is a smidge less than three inches wide, and I have to say it was very snug to get into the grip. There was no way it was falling out, but I think it was close to the limit in size unless you're way stronger than me at getting those springs to pull apart. The most important thing is that the cap grip does exactly what it's designed to do. It gives you a very comfortable hand grip while holding the phone. Now, if this is all it did, it wouldn't really solve all of the problems I described. Built into the cap grip is a physical Bluetooth shutter button right where your forefinger comfortably rests when the grip is on the phone. Connecting the shutter button via Bluetooth to the iPhone was about the easiest Bluetooth connection I've ever done. Hold the shutter button down until the light comes on, and that will trigger the cap grip to show up in the Bluetooth settings on your phone. Tap connect, and you're done. When you're finished, press and hold the shutter button to disconnect from Bluetooth. The shutter button actually slides out of the cap grip, so that means you can now remotely shoot photos from your cell phone using this shutter button. This can be especially handy if you use the quarter 20 thread on the bottom of the cap grip to mount your phone on a tripod. Sliding the shutter button out of the cap grip was a little tough. You might need a strong fingernail to get it out at first, but hopefully it would loosen up after a while. The Ulanzi's cap grip isn't a product that's going to change the world, and I don't think it actually solves a problem for me. But if you find yourself holding a phone for long periods, shooting video or photos, or maybe if you've got a condition where your hands tire easily, or if you have trouble holding a phone steady for photography, the Ulanzi cap grip is only 13 bucks. It's very light, and it might be just what you need. Now, when I went to look for it, the Ulanzi cap grip was out of stock at B&H, but I think it has come back in stock, somebody told me. But you could also go right to the source at ulanzi.com. That's U-L-A-N-Z-I.com. And of course, the links are in the show notes. 
If you do go to Ulancy.com, you'll find that they have lots of very inexpensive mounts and tripods and even cages for phones. You know, those things where you can uh, put a phone or an iPad into a cage and mount, uh, you know, a light to it and a microphone and all those kinds of things. They have those and they're really inexpensive. And they actually work for or they actually have them for other types of cameras as well. You might find something else that you need while you're there and it won't empty your pocketbook. This just in, Steve found the comment on the blog post for the Lanzi hand grip where Tim McCoy uh, went looking for the uh, for the device and he found that on Amazon it was $17. I mean, that's crazy. So he went over to B&H, he was able to find them in stock, but it was free shipping only for orders of $40 or more. So he bought four of them and he's giving them away as stocking stuffers. How's that for a perfect solution? On last week's show, I suggested that for now, I didn't really feel right asking for donations to support the shows. I asked that you consider donating to a local food bank to help those in needs. I decided I should probably take my own advice, so I did just that. By the way, I do reserve the right to get back to being greedy really soon, though, okay? This week, Dr. Alexander Salter, the son of our dear friends Diana Bill, had an article published in the Wall Street Journal. How cool is that? As you can imagine, we're all pretty chuffed about it around here. We were doing virtual high fives about it, and I was trying to think of something to do to commemorate the occasion. I got the idea to try to create one of those drawings that they use in the Wall Street Journal for the bigwigs, you know, like Steve Jobs, Walter Mossberg, and Grumpy Cat. These portraits are called head cuts. It's spelled H-E-D-C-U-T-S. It's a method which is a combination of tiny dots and little lines between them. For the real portraits that they do at the Wall Street Journal, artists painstakingly draw these tiny dots and lines. But the Wall Street Journal has developed an AI algorithm that will create a pretty good simulation. If you're a subscriber to the Wall Street Journal, you can upload your own image and have one made. But alas, I'm not a subscriber to the Wall Street Journal and neither is Alex. I figured there had to be a way to create a close approximation, so I went hunting on the internets. Remember I said up front that head cuts are dots and lines? Well, we're going to settle for just the dots. A drawing made with just the dots is called a stipple drawing. In case you're interested, to stipple means to engrave by means of dots and flicks. I found lots of tutorials on how to draw your own stipple drawings, but we know that's not going to happen with Allison. I needed the nerd solution, and boy, howdy did I find it. I discovered an open source project called Stipple Gen 2 by a team that goes by Evil Mad Scientist. They have a blog post about Stipple Gen 2 at evilmadscientist.com. Stipple Gen 2 was created in something they call the Processing Development Environment, which I'd never heard of before. According to Processing.org, Processing is a flexible software sketchbook and a language for learning how to code within the context of the visual arts. Well, this sure sounded fun, so I went to the Evil Mad Genius GitHub repository, and I started to poke around. I do want to point out the GitHub repos are not the friendliest environment if you're not a developer, but luckily I am a developer, so I can teach you a little trick. If you just want to download and run the compiled software, it's not entirely obvious how to do it. Repos in GitHub do have a big green button inviting you to download the code, but you'll get exactly that, the code behind the tool, not an app that you can run. Now, not all repos have packaged apps, but some do. If there is an app or something nicely packaged to be downloaded, it will be on the right side under the word releases. Now, I didn't know about this, but I learned about it from Helma when we were working on the Taming the Terminal book. 
If you want to just download the latest version of Taming the Terminal, you can look for the releases section in our repo over on GitHub. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. Anyway, back to StippleGen 2. Under releases on the StippleGen 2 repo, you'll find zip files for Windows, both 32 and 64-bit, Linux, Mac, and even a signed version for Mac OS. All right, we're past the first nerdy hump. Double-click that zip file and you've got yourself an app to play with. Now we circle right back into Nerdville as soon as you launch it, because StippleGen 2 has that lovely Soviet-era UI that lets you know you're working on an open-source tool. The majority of the app is a giant square with a drawing being created before your very eyes. The app starts by creating a stipple drawing upon launch using an input file of Grace Kelly. Dots, or should I say stipples, are being calculated and added in successive passes, which they call generations. You can press a not very identifiable button to load your own image as a PNG, JPEG, or GIF. Nothing against Grace, but I decided to use a headshot of me to do the illustrations for this exercise. Across the bottom of the image is a narrow panel that contains all of the controls. The font is simply dreadful with no anti-aliasing, and the text is wee tiny such that it's nearly unreadable. I even read one of the updates said we made it even thinner. It's, you made it even harder to read. Anyway, luckily the control sliders are also super janky and hard to use, so that makes up for the font issues. The left side of the control panel has the primary controls. It warns you that changing the primary controls will restart the process of creating your stipple drawing. Depending on your settings, creation of a good stipple drawing will take a very long time, so you do want to think about it before you change one of the primary controls. Under the primary control warning, you'll see a slider to adjust the number of stipples. Now, there's a lot of math going on figuring out where these stipples go. So the more stipples you ask for, the time to calculate it goes up dramatically. By default, Stipple Gen 2 starts with 2,000 stipples, but you can go up to a maximum of 10,000 stipples. I noticed on the blog post there is a secret way to go higher, but you're not going to want to. It turns out 2,000 doesn't look great, but 10,000 can take a really, really long time. On the bottom right side of the control panel, you'll see time per frame. So that's the same as time per generation. They kind of mix and match those words, but a generation is what you see get displayed on screen each time it does a whole new set of calculations. So if you start with 2000 stipples, it takes around seven and a half seconds to generate one frame. If you drag the slider to tell it to calculate 10,000 uh, 10, stipples, that time per frame jumps to nearly 800 seconds, which is 13 minutes per generation. Now, while it's working away at this task of drawing the stipples for you, you'll see the status on the right side say cal calculating Voronoi diagram. Well, clearly, before we keep going learning the controls for Stipple Gen 2, we need to go down to rabbit hole and find out what a Voronoi diagram is. By the way, it's spelled V-O-R-O-N-O-I, which is very hard to say. Anyway, going down these rabbit holes is why it takes me so long to write my blog posts. Anyway, learning about these, according to uh, Wikipedia, in mathematics, a Voronoi diagram is a partition of a plane into regions close to each of a set of given objects. In the simplest case, these objects are just finite, finitely many points in the plane, called seeds, sites, or generators. For each seed, there is a corresponding region consisting of all of the points of the plane closer to that seed than to any other. These regions are called Voronoi cells. 
Okay, that made it really clear, but I think I can I can clarify it for you. Basically, you have a bunch of dots on a piece of paper. If you put a bunch of dots on a piece of paper, you can draw polygonal shapes around each one that connects directly to each other. So every polygon is stuck to another polygon. That's possible to create that. When StippleGen 2 begins calculating, you don't see the dots. You see the Voronoi diagram being created first. Now, I know David Ross is going to be disappointed that I'm not going to get into the math of how these are calculated, but you know what? We simply can't go down that route, David. We have time, and we don't have time. We must be content with understanding that there's a lot of math going on and move on to making our stipple drawing looking as, look as good as possible. I decided to run Stipple Gen 2 on my spare older MacBook Pro, which is running Big Sur. To my delight, macOS Big Sur kept spontaneously rebooting on that Mac after Stipple Gen 2 had been running for hours. I would restart the generation and Big Sur would do a reboot again after hours of generations. Now it's been suggested that perhaps the Mac was overheating, which is still no excuse, but I don't think that's it. Even with 10,000 stipples to calculate, Stipple Gen 2 only uses one processor fully, but doesn't stress the other three in that 2016 MacBook Pro, so the total load is only about 24%. It doesn't appear to be using the GPU at all, and the CPU temperature sensor only went from 60 degrees Fahrenheit at idle to around 75 to 80 F while doing these complex calculations. I posted in our Slack at podfeed.com slash Slack about the spontaneous reboots of macOS Big Sur, and while a few others chimed in with the same thing happening to them, like Stephen Getz with his brand new M1 uh, MacBook Air, a couple of other people said that they have the same problem with Catalina. So I have no clue what's going on there, but I decided to switch over to my 2019 MacBook Pro running macOS Catalina, and I was able to let Stipple Gen 2 run for more than a day without being interrupted. While the 10,000 stipple run definitely looked way better than the 2,000 stipple render, it did take an awfully long time. The blog post from Evil Mad Genius suggested something around the 6,000 stipple number would get you a pretty good image, and at 11 seconds per frame to calculate it, that's a pretty practical compromise. They also say that a pretty good image comes out after around 40 generations. So it's running a new pass every 11 seconds, and at about 40 generations, it starts to look good. I should mention that these generations get faster and faster over time. It's just the very first ones that are, take forever. Now, we already discussed that changing the number of stipples would start the rendering process all over again. But on the right-hand side of the control panel, you'll see display options. And modifying these options does not start the rendering process over again. The two main controls you'll care about are the minimum dot size and the dot size range. Now, you would think that if you set the minimum dot size really small and the dot size range really big, you'd get the best simulated range uh, shading of an image. Oddly, that's not the case. The minimum dot size has a range of 0.5 to 8 mysterious units. I don't know what the units are, but it's 0.5 to 8. And the dot size range is from 0 to 20 mysterious units. Maybe not the same units. I have no idea. Anyway, setting the minimum dot size to 0.5 and the dot size range to 20 actually creates an image with an excessive amount of contrast. For example, in the stipple drawing generated from my headshot, the, my hair becomes solid black and my shirt looks almost pure white on one side. Now, it's good that you can fiddle with these controls without re-rendering because it does take a bit of finesse of dot size and dot size range to get any, an image that you're going to like. It makes sense that changing these uh, shouldn't be a highly compute-intensive effort because it's not figuring out where the dots go, it's just figuring out what size to make them. 
But remember up front, I told you that the controls were janky and hard to use? I spent quite a while trying to find the pattern to why sometimes I could drag one of the controls and it would immediately respond to me, and other times it wouldn't react at all. At first, I thought maybe the buttons were good representations of the true targets. So I started clicking at the top, the bottom, the right, the left side of the button. Sometimes it would work and sometimes not. Then I thought maybe it was when I tapped away to another app and came back, and that's why it reacted to my dragging the controls. But that was a red herring as well. After working with Stipple Gen 2 for about a week, I can finally explain why it seems persnickety on when it works and when it does not. When Stipple Gen 2 first starts to render, the app is busy. Even at 2,000 stipples, the beginning calculations are lengthy, and the app will pretty much only react to you right when it's finished a generation. If you don't catch it right then, you're waiting till the next generation before it's going to react. Now, the good news is, like I said, the more generations it gets done, the faster each generation gets. Now, after an hour on a low number of stipples, you can drag the sliders with abandon and pretty much get close to instant gratification. I let it run for more than a day with 10,000 stipples, and I can play with those sliders as often as I like because it got down to 0.07 seconds per frame. Like I said, that was more than a day doing the calculations. When you've got your sliders adjusted and your masterpiece looks pretty good, you can save your stipple file. It will save it as an SVG file. That stands for Scalable Vector Graphics. I know it's just a bunch of dots, but each stipple is evidently worthy of being considered a vector, even though they have neither magnitude nor direction. If you want to save the image as a normal file, such as a PNG or JPEG, you'll need to open up the SVG file in a vector design program. Now, my preference is Affinity Designer from Serif, but if you don't want to shell out any money for this little project, you can use the free Vectornator available in the Mac App Store. I'm going to warn you, though, that 10,000 stipple image took Vectornator to its knees, while Affinity Designer had no trouble opening it. Even the 6,000 stipple image that I made later was still, it was, it would open it, but its reaction time, it would take, you know, maybe a minute if I tried to move something in it. Anyway, I had to giggle at the file when I opened it in Affinity Designer, the 10,001. In the right sidebar, you can see different layers and groups of layers in your document. It had one group, and inside it was a separate layer for each oval. Yes, that's right, 10,000 separate layers, each with a single oval on it. That scroll bar was tiny. When you open up the SGV file, I'm sorry, SVG file in your vector design program, even though you have a square image, oddly it's going to be on a very wide rectangle. I don't know why that is. You have to select the layer for the group of ovals and then on export, make sure you only export the selected layer. After all this work, we finally have a pretty decent looking stipple image. The bottom line is that I had a blast with this odd little tool. I enjoyed discovering it. I enjoyed figuring out how to get it out of an open source repo. I liked learning how the dots were calculated. And I was particularly pleased to finally crack the code on how to get its controls to pay attention to me. You just have to be patient. And in the end, I was able to create a, a really cool stipple image of my headshot. Now, here's the punchline. There's a free app for iOS called Snapdot that does the same thing. The only problem with Snapdot is that the sliders are super easy to use. The interface is completely obvious. It makes your stipple in about three seconds, and the rendered image looks a bit better than Stipple Gen 2. It'll even make the stipples in grayscale or color for crying out loud. So if you want to go the easy route and use Snapdot, then fine. I won't stop you. 
but I may not respect you. I received my new M1 Mac Mini on Friday night after waiting a bit longer than others because I did a build to order to get a larger 1TB SSD. In theory, I bought the Mac Mini to replace its aging predecessor, a 6-year-old 2.6GHz Intel Core i5. But let's be honest with ourselves, I just really wanted an M1 Mac, and since the big girl MacBook Pro isn't out yet, this was a relatively inexpensive method to get an M1 and get to dip my toes into this uh, new technology. Our current Intel Mac Mini doesn't really have much to do. Its primary duty is to run two applications that back up our Synology to our Drobo. The Mac Mini runs Carbon Copy Cloner, which works great on all of the shares on our Synology, except for some reason uh, Mike Bombich and I cannot discern, Carbon Copy Cloner can't seem to back up Steve's giant Final Cut Pro libraries. And those are video libraries. So that's where Chronosync comes in. I use that to do Steve's libraries and everything else is done with Carbon Copy Cloner. So between 2 p.m. and 3 p.m. every single day, the Mac Mini jumps into action, runs these backups, and then goes to sleep until the next day. For a while, the Mac Mini ran as my Plex server, but the itty-bitty processor in the Synology is actually way faster and more reliable. The Mac Mini is so neglected that I just noticed it's still running Mojave. That was not by intent. I just apparently never went over there and noticed it was a desert on the background. Regardless of whether I needed an M1 Mac Mini, here we are. I've been a laptop user ever since the original PowerBooks were introduced, so I'm not used to using a desktop. In reality, though, my MacBook Pro is tethered to a CalDigit TS3 Plus dock most of the day. The dock provides powered Ethernet as well as video to my 27-inch 5K LG display. In a way, my laptop acts like a desktop most of the time. But I'd love to start using the Mac Mini for all of my work, but unfortunately the Universal Audio Apollo Solo Thunderbolt interface for my big girl mic isn't yet compatible with macOS Big Sur. I need to use the big monitor with my MacBook Pro, but I can't use the Mac Mini without a monitor. I wanted to be able to have my cake and eat it too. And that's the beauty of using a dock. I realized I can just move the Thunderbolt 3 cable between the two Macs whenever I want to switch. Now, this does cause some mental gymnastics for me, though. For ages, I've had my MacBook Pro on the right side of my desk on a stand, the 27-inch monitor is right in front of me, and the Magic Keyboard and Trackpad connected, are connected over Bluetooth to the MacBook Pro. Now, when I'm working on the Mac Mini, my desk looks exactly the same. I've still got the MacBook Pro on the stand at my right, the keyboard and mouse are still right in front of me, and the 27-inch display is still showing the display of a Mac, but now it's the Mac Mini. And the Mac Mini is hidden behind the MacBook Pro, so I don't even see it, so it looks everything looks the same to me. Let me give you an example of how my little brain gets confused by this setup. While prepping for the live show, I had some audio I wanted to play from QuickTime and have the live audience be able to hear it. That's pretty easy to do. I opened up Rogue, Rogue Amoeba's loopback software and added QuickTime to the virtual audio source I use to pipe audio to YouTube and Discord for the live show. But when I hit play on QuickTime, the little meters in loopback didn't even move for the QuickTime source. I sat there in confusion for a few minutes before I realized my mistake. I had correctly set up loopback on the MacBook to my right, but then I opened QuickTime on the big display in front of me, which was the Mac Mini. Of course the MacBook Pro's loopback couldn't hear QuickTime because it wasn't there. It wasn't playing on that computer. I doubt this will be the last time I get confused like this. 
Well, I got the Mac Mini in the evening on Friday, and I hooked it up and did a little bit of playing around, installing just a couple of essentials like 1Password and Text Expander. Now, 1Password isn't universal yet, so I got a request to install Rosetta 2, and it worked perfectly. My first impressions of the Mac Mini were just what people have said. This is a noticeably snappy machine. I noticed it in some odd places, though. I downloaded an app, and I moved it from downloads to applications, and it felt like it vaporized it moved so quickly. Now, if you'd asked me before, how long does it take to move an app between folders, I would have told you it was already instantaneous. But this feels even faster. It's like it just goes, Bink! it's just gone. Later, I told Steve when I came down to dinner that I was kind of hyperventilating because I was feeding the new Mac things to do, but it was doing them so quickly, I didn't have a chance to rest between activities. You know, usually you got a minute or two. In the morning, I like to sit in bed with a cup of coffee and doodle around on the internet but I really wanted to play with the the M1 Mac Mini that first day. Again, I got a cake and eat it too problem, and I had a solution. I got my MacBook Pro, and I did a screen share into the Mac Mini to continue to play. The 5K display was readable on my 16-inch laptop screen in screen sharing, but I lowered the resolution a bit using display preferences on the Mac Mini to make it just a bit easier to see on the 16-inch MacBook Pro. And I gotta tell you, it worked great. I installed a few more apps on the new machine, mostly from the Mac App Store, but a few from outside of the store. I installed iThoughts so I could look at my clean install mind map to see what should be my highest priorities, because I have that all documented, of course. I added Dropbox, Microsoft To Do, Telegram, and Ulysses, and when Apple demanded I install Keynote, Pages, and GarageBand, I allowed it. At this point in the story, I've just told you everything that I have installed on this new Mac. Later in the morning, I sat down at my desk and the 27-inch display looked positively silly at the low resolution I'd used for the screen share. I opened displays in System Preferences to set the resolution back to normal. When I tried to change the resolution, System Preferences got locked up. And no big deal, you know, these things happen. I simply used the force quit action to get rid of it. I relaunched System Preferences again, and again it locked up. But for extra entertainment, the force quit window locked up as well. I don't think I've ever seen force quit get locked up, but you know what? There's a first time for everything. I was chatting with Stephen Getz about this interesting turn of events, and he reminded me that I could use Activity Monitor to find the processes and force quit them from there. I was able to force quit the Displays Preference pane, but I didn't see a force quit process for force quit so that I could force quit it from Activity Monitor. Okie dokie, time for a restart. You know what? The Mac Mini wasn't having any of that nonsense. With force quit stuck, it would not obey the restart command from the menus. I had to resort to using the power button on the Mac Mini. I hate to do that, but what are you going to do if it won't restart? It booted up, it asked me for my password to log in, and it rebooted. And it also was taking a very long time to boot up each time. So it boots up, Okay, I get the black screen, I see the, the progress bar, and then it asked me for my password to log in but it reboots again. I tried again and again, it rebooted. I let it do this dance four times before I decided it was time for a a full power down with the hardware button. I waited till that little light went off. When it booted up this time, I had more entertainment ready for me. It went into recovery and it told me to reinstall macOS Big Sur. (sighs) Well, that was fun. I might've been able to bypass it, but you know what, who am I to argue with it? If it really thinks it's gotten borked, I should let it have a new version. 45 minutes later, I had a reinstall of macOS Big Sur 11.0.1. And yes, that is the version I was originally running. 
this is when things got really interesting. When it finally booted up, I got a pop-up window with a little file vault logo on it that said, Panic Medic Boot. A third-party kernel extension was preventing the machine from successfully booting. All third-party kernel extensions have been disabled. You will be prompted to re-enable them in the security and privacy system preferences pane as they are used. But here's the thing, Sparky. I didn't install any kernel extensions. The only thing I run that even smells like a kernel extension is the audio capture engine for the Rogue Amoeba software audio tools to work. According to a support article by Rogue Amoeba, it is not a kernel extension, but for some reason it is treated like one by Big Sur, and you have to go through a bit of a dance to install it. I put a link in the show notes if you uh, need that. So that could have been the cause of the panic medic boot, except for the fact that I hadn't installed any of the Rogue Amoeba tools yet, so the audio capture engine was not installed. Now, the good news is that since the reinstall of macOS Big Sur, I've been able to have a few days more fun with the M1 Mac Mini without any issues at all. Just to test the original failure path, I tried changing the screen resolution to see if it would hang up again. Not only did it not hang up, it was crazy fast. You know how when you change resolution, there's kind of a delay and the screen goes black for a bit and then it comes back? That's not what happens on an M1 Mac. It changes as close to instantaneous as you could hope for. I actually thought something was wrong. It was so fast. I mean, it was it was just disconcerting to have it just go deet, deet, deet. each time you hit it. It would just change. It is absolutely life changing. Now, when I do the live show, I use a USB-C display for the chat room. And my MacBook Pro basically has a hissy fit when I connect it. It blinks on and off three or four times before it agrees to talk to it properly. I thought this might be a good challenge for the M1 to see if it would be instantaneous. But I didn't get to find out because the Mac Mini doesn't recognize the USB-C display at all. I have no idea why. Anyway, as Ron Hebe said so eloquently when I was whining about all of this in our Slack group that I just described, he wrote this. Relatively new OS on first generation new CPU chip. Hmm, who could have predicted that there would be issues? I'm going to do something I never, ever do, and we'll see whether this works. I'm going to tell you a story, and I do not have a script to tell that story. It's really not part of the podcast. This is sort of a a meta story we're going to go down here. You know I do the live show, and uh, we use a couple of different pieces of software to create the live show. I use a software called Mimo Live on my computer, and I send my video and audio to Steve. And on his computer, he also runs Mimo Live, and then he broadcasts to YouTube, and uh, that's why you can watch the video and see it later. It's on live, and it's on recorded. And between those two things, we are sending the audio uh, to Discord for people to hear who are attending the live show. So... In order to send my audio to Discord and to YouTube Live through Mimo Live, I use Rogue Amoeba's loopback software. So loopback allows me to combine two audio sources into a virtual audio source. So in order for the playback of Hindenburg, my audio recording software, to be heard in the live show through either Discord or YouTube, I need to combine that with my microphone's input. So again, I use loopback to do that. All right, so we got Loopback and Mimo Live are probably the important things there. And I also use Rogue Amoeba's tool, Audio Hijack Pro, in order to, it's actually, it's just called Audio Hijack now, right? Uh, Anyway, I use Audio Hijack to capture my microphone. I do some sweetening of the sound, and then that gets piped in. 
So we've got Audio Hijack, Mimo Live, and Loopback all in combination working here to help make the live show go. So two weeks ago during the live show, suddenly my voice was gone from the podcast, from the uh, live show. People could still hear Steve, but they weren't able to hear me. They weren't able to hear uh, Hindenburg playing. And uh, when I look at my audio tools, they all have little bouncy meters. And my voice wasn't moving on any of the bouncing meters. Now, I don't remember how we fixed it the first time. I, I quit some apps and came, went out and came back in. And we got it fixed. But then last week, it happened again. And it was like 17 minutes into the show. Now, Steve is really competent, but I don't think he can do the podcast without me. I, I, I appear to be an important component to this. So being able to hear me was an important thing. So 17 minutes in, in I go flatline. You can't hear me anywhere. And I'm looking at all the meters on all my applications. My voice is not moving. You can't see it on, we can't see it in Mimo Live. I couldn't see it in Loopback. I couldn't see it in Audio Hijack. It was like I wasn't talking. So we messed around. I messed around. I turned a bunch of stuff off and on and tried to get in and out. And then I noticed uh, partway into this that the lights were gone on my uh, Universal Audio Apollo Solo interface, the one I was talking about earlier that I said um, it can't be upgraded to Big Sur yet. So when I saw the lights were out, I thought, oh my gosh, that's what's happening is that piece of hardware is actually failing. So Steve raced in and he dug out my previous Shure MVI interface, which is USB instead of Thunderbolt, and I plugged it in and it worked and I was able to solve the problem. So I thought that I had figured out that it was the uh, UA Audio uh, device and so I was in the process of getting ready to pen a letter to uh, Sweetwater where I bought it to get an exchange on it. Now, I wasn't exactly sure how to explain why it had failed, especially because I'm able to record podcasts all week long without any of this happening. So that was kind of curious to me because um, I was I, I could do podcasts with Bard. I could do Chit Chat Across the Pond. I never had this problem. It only happens during the live show. So I was still kind of hesitant to tell UA that they had a problem with their hardware, but I couldn't figure out how to tell what the problem was. I'm thinking about it, and I happen to be listening to the Mac Geek Gab. We get to the very end of the show, and all of a sudden I hear Dave Hamilton say, John, John, I'm not getting any audio from you. And I realize Dave does all the same stuff we do. Dave is like Steve. He's the producer and on-air talent. And he uses Mimo Live to send all the video and audio to YouTube Live. And he uses it um, and he uses the same tools I do with Audio Hijack and Loopback. So those three main pieces of software are all running on his computer as this is going on. And John is running some of these same applications as well. I'm not exactly sure everything John's running, but John lost his ability to broadcast uh, his audio to Dave. So I hear this and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, maybe it's not my interface. Maybe it's something about this combination of tools. So I texted Dave and I told him it was happening to me and we popped into a video chat with Steve and we started talking through all the different things that were going on and comparing notes and it seemed like we might be experiencing the same problem. Now, the way Dave got John back was interesting. Now, he also uses Logic for his recording, where I use Hindenburg. But he was able to change, uh, let's see, he changed the buffer size in his recording application. And that what he thinks that did was it tickled the audio system and made it flush a cache or something in order to get back into business. So that was kind of interesting because he did it on his computer. I don't know that the problem here is on Steve's, because remember, Steve and Dave are equivalent in this plot. 
uh, it felt like it was really something wrong on mine. So we were thinking about that, and then we thought, well, wait a minute. Mimo Live seems to be involved in this primarily because I'm not having the problem when I'm not running Mimo Live. So what's easier than just getting the CEO of Boinks, the makers of Mimo Live, on the on the uh, video call? So we got a hold of Oliver Breidenbach, who is in Germany, and uh, he was still up and he said, hey, I'd love to talk to you guys. And so he came on and we actually had a really nice time talking the four of us because we do hang out together at certain events, but obviously nobody's hanging out at certain events anymore or for right now. So anyway, we got talking and, and he couldn't figure out how Mimo Live could be causing the problem, but he did think Dave was onto something with this tickling of the buffer. And uh, he also suggested I might be able to get this to restart or get me reconnected by changing the sample rate of my audio input in uh, loopback. So we talked about the different possible solutions. And he also said, if this happens again, that I could go into uh, activity monitor and you can pull a sample from an application. So he says, if it crashes, if it does, or not crashes, but if it does this again, get a sample from Mimo Live. He says, that way, at least I have something to look at to see if there's any chance Mimo Live is causing the problem. Then uh, we really wanted to get uh, Paul Kafasis on with us as well. He's the CEO of Rogue Amoeba that makes Loopback and Audio Hijack, but we didn't have contact information that would allow us to get him in. So we didn't do that, but we sent an email. Uh, Dave wrote it, and then I added some more information. And he didn't understand how his tools could do it either. But he asked me to, the next time we're, we're recording, to start up Audio Hijack with the option key held down, which would create a debug log for them on Audio Hijack. So at 3.30 today, Steve and I started up Mimo Live and Audio Hijack and uh, went into um, Discord and we got Loopback going and we started it up and we ran it for a full hour and a half before the live show and it never failed. And I am now recording right now, and it has not failed in this entire time. So this has all been running. We're coming up on three full hours, and we've had no failure of this system. Naturally, because I'm watching it, I'm pulling log files, and I can catch it in the act, it is not going to fail. So anyway, I thought this whole exercise was pretty interesting. I, I am going to put in one more detail just so I can remember to go back and listen to this, just in case this was why. When we were talking about the buffer size, um, Oliver mentioned that there's a buffer size change uh, toggle in or pull down in Mimo Live. So I had a buffer size of 512 samples. And while I was talking to him, I changed it to 128. So this entire exercise has happened with 128. And let's read what the audio buffer size actually means in Mimo Live. It says smaller buffer sizes result in lower playthrough device latency, but increase the CPU load. That's okay. I got plenty of CPU load. CPU load. If you, it also says if you experience audio dropouts or similar issues, choose a higher buffer size. Hmm. I made it lower. Anyway, it goes on to say: note that this setting takes effect immediately and affects playthrough, recording, streaming, and play out. So I don't know if setting it to 128 fixed it, especially since it says if you're having audio dropouts, change it to a bigger number. But that's the only thing I changed in between. So. I'm going to wrap us up there. I don't know uh, what we're going to find out. Maybe it'll crash, and not crash, but maybe it'll lock me out next week. Hopefully I'll uh, remember to get all these things set to get it started and see whether we can catch it in the act next time. Sorry to disappoint everybody, but it didn't break when we were watching it. 
Anyway, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Want to become a patron? podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to do a one-time donation through PayPal? podfeet.com slash PayPal. Don't want to do any of those? Go give some money to a food bank. If you want to join in the conversation, you can join our Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack or join our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show and Kevin will be back soon, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.